Strategy and Insider, exploring future trends and their impacts. Hello, everyone. My name is Thomas, and I'm the host of this podcast and a partner at Strategy End. Welcome to this very special episode of our Strategy and Insider podcast. Those of you who are following us since the beginning of October 2019 will know that we're celebrating kind of a milestone with our 20th episode today. Therefore, I would like to take this opportunity and sincerely thank you all for your interest, but also the positive feedback that we received over the time. It goes without saying that I'm beyond happy that our show, our podcast, attracts so many loyal listeners who follow us since day one. For me and my podcast producers, this is of course the biggest motivation and confirms our mission to continue presenting you the latest, most innovative and most impactful trends around the future of healthcare. And I think I'm not promising too much when I say that we have found a very worthy guest for our anniversary episode. Today, I'm happily deep diving into personalized medicine again with a rising startup that develops 2D and 3D printed drugs. But with that said, let's get into it and let me introduce Professor Dr. Christian Franken, who is a co-founder and managing shareholder of Digital Health Systems. Christian joined Dahesis, short for Digital Health Systems, in 2020 as one of their three co-founders. Together with his partners, Professor Dr. Gerald Huber and Dr. Markus Dachtler, he is leading a team of roughly 30 people who are working on the forefront of precision medicine. Their vision is to allow every patient access to personalized medicines by developing not only 2D and 3D printers for those personalized drugs, but also the software and the substances used in the process. As a pharmacist himself, specializing in drug information and clinical pharmacy, Christian is well equipped for this endeavor with an extensive background in pharmacology, medicine and public health. He actually started studying pharmacy in Regensburg and Bonn, completed his doctorate in pharmacology at the Pharmaceutical Institute of the University of Bonn. And after that, he worked as the head pharmacist at the University Hospital in Düsseldorf before in 27, he joined Doc Morris, becoming their chief pharmaceutical officer until he took the challenge as a startup founder at Dahesis back in 2020. In addition to that, Christian is very active in academia as a professor for public health in Bremen for more than 10 years, as well as being an assistant professor for clinical pharmacology in Maastricht until today. So with that said, thank you very much for joining me in our 20th episode today, Christian. Thomas, thanks for having me and congrats to your anniversary. Yeah, and uh, we already had a very good conversation when we just came into the room and couldn't wait actually to uh, start recording yeah, because we had great conversations right from the get-go. And one of the many perks of hosting this podcast is that I get to meet great people yeah, um, with fascinating backgrounds. And we did have several guests from the startup sphere already up until here, such as Nora Plum from Selfie, Dan Vedat from BIOS, as well as people like Christian Rommel from Bayer. And in our last episode, Elena Bonfignoli from Microsoft, deep diving a lot into data and data science and pattern recognition. With you, 
I can welcome a co-founder of a fascinating startup, but also someone who has served in the C-suite in the past for some of the big players. So let me ask you, what made you leave more the corporate world and pursue something completely new with a lot of challenges ahead, but also probably learnings that you could make from the past to transfer into that new startup and founding world? I mean, um, Doc Morris is not that typical uh, corporate company, but I, I, I worked for the University Hospital of Düsseldorf, for example, yeah. which, which is a, a huge company as well. With a lot of people working there very traditionally. And um, this was not the case at Doc Morris or the Rose, okay. honestly. Because when I started there in 2007, it was more like a startup feeling. Uh, we had a, a solid business model, solid business case, earned money. But at the end of the day, it was like a Robin Hood uh, business. So okay. it was very important to sharpen the business, to improve it day by day, the digital techniques, to be very efficient, to be very safe on the technical side, on the pharmaceutical side, to be like Robin Hood on the public side. Um, so that was really a thrilling and, and more than interesting time. And I had the opportunity to fund some some companies together with Doc Morris mm -hmm. and uh, with some other companies in the healthcare market. So it's it's um, actually not the first time that I, I'm dealing with startups and startup feeling and the challenges that you have here. And um, this is something I really enjoy because what I learned at Doc Morris, I can use it here right now. And in addition, I was one of the founders of one private university in Germany. So to do something new, trying to create something, trying to bring it to the ground. And um, I, I love the challenge to see whether or not it, it can work mm -hmm. and to help the company uh, being able to survive. This is something I really like. And this is... This is honestly one of the reasons why I left Doc Morris mm -hmm. uh, after 13 years. I made a lot of experience, met a lot of people. I think I have a brilliant network, a lot of fascinating people, but I felt there must be something new. And in 2015 or so, or 2014, I met Jared Huber. Mm -hmm. uh, to me, this is the thunder brain behind Adhesis. And he, he worked for a Ratio Farm there. He okay. was one of the managing directors there responsible for the R&D part. And R&D part at Ratio Farm doesn't mean that they do the re research and development thing around APIs, drugs or so. It's, it's more or less the formulation part, how mm -hmm. to build tablets, capsules, patches, syringes, and so on. And his idea was very early to print drugs. And I love this way, honestly. And it was a very interesting conversation because to me in, in the early 2014, I thought this is more like a, a Star Wars thing can happen in five, mm -hmm. 10, 20, 50 years, maybe or so. And he said, no, it works right now. I have a lab and it works. Visit me in Ulm and I can show you. Okay. And I did so and I was really fascinated that from a technological point of view, it works. And um, a few years later, we decided to build a company around this um, technology because it's, it's more than one technology, honestly, and I can explain it later on. Mm. And... Um, at the beginning, I thought, well, Christian, good idea. You can open your network. You can give some smart advices. Some other is doing the CEO job. L <laughs> like a coach from the sideline. Yes, huh? yes exactly. <laughs> Let them coach from the sideline. And um, it's a small, smart idea. But time is running. And I thought, no, this is not something I would really love to do in the next years. 
um, I really would be part of the game. Okay. And uh, decided together with my family to leave a very safe job. Can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a very safe job, trying to build something new. And everyone knows uh, nine of ten uh, startups will fail from different reasons. Yeah. And um, this, is, this is really a challenge. Uh, but my wife said, I know you, Guy, um, you have to do it. <laughs> so <laughs> we, we decided to go in, in, into this adventure. And um, we developed the first printers, software, pharma parts, and honestly had the first study that we could uh, make together with, with the university uh, in, in Heidelberg. Mm -hmm. So it works. But again, to your question, I learned a lot about the healthcare market and the network there and to build new companies. And I'm, I'm very happy that I have the opportunity to do mm. so and try to bring this knowledge to the market and to my company mm. and trying to control the barriers that we have and mm. to, to find new ways, new paths, because this is a disruptive technology. Yeah, you, you do not only have to deal with new technologies, hardware, software things, or pharma, you also have to do with the market. Mm. I mean, to have a system which is up and running and which works is uh, good on the one hand side. On the other hand side, someone has to pay for it. Yeah. I mean, you bring a lot into the conversation and things have been developing really speedily yeah, since the first idea. If I relate that to your other job, I mean, you have an academic career, yeah, um, both in the Netherlands as well as in Germany. When you compare your academic career that started back then to what students are experiencing today, would you go back in time and, and rather have a, a student life by now? I really love that question. And honestly, uh, when I was a, a young man, I'm really old, I'm 53 years old right now, I didn't want to study. I wanted to become a pilot. That, that was Is my it? dream. Yeah, really. I, I, I had a private pilot license. Okay. And I never thought I would ever study. That was and I have to say now, seeing you with the head, uh, <laughs> headphones, you look a bit I, like I, a pilot. It's, 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 it's so, thank you so much. Very smart. No, um, but today I'm very happy that that didn't happen, yeah. honestly. But I, I never thought I would study. No, I, I would love to have my hobby being my job. Uh -huh. And um, but but it was the other way around. So I had to decide what would you like to study, and I decided to study pharmacy because a lot of natural sciences, uh, a lot of possibilities after the studies to to get a job. And um, I did so and uh, studied in the 90s. And to your question, studying in the 90s is completely different to what uh, students uh, have today. And to give you an answer, yes, I would love to study. I, I don't want to become a pilot anymore because I can fly when I want. <laughs> I don't know when I have to. <laughs> And studying today is completely different. I mean, the world in the 90s was, was completely different as of compared to today because the world was clear structured. I, I study pharmacy. I become a pharmacist and we work in a pharmacy or in a hospital or maybe in the pharmaceutical industry. That's it. Full stop. Yeah. No one was talking about the digital revolution. No one was talking about data. No one was talking about precision medicine. And here we talk about your and my business and market. Yeah. And I mean, digitalization is much more than precision medicine, individualized medicine, and so on. There's a variety of studies you can have today. A lot of combinations mm -hmm. you can choose today. And studying in other countries than in Germany 
is much more popular than it was in the late 90s or in the 90s at all. So it's it's more liberal. It's more free. Mm -hmm. You can um, learn much more. You can come together with other cultures. So if I have the decision to study now or in the 90s, I would love to study today. And there's another reason why I think that this answer is from my perspective absolutely correct it's the way of studying today is using other learning technologies mm -hmm. and in germany we are lacking behind a little bit because uh, we do the studies like we did it 14 years 20 years ago um, if you look at the netherlands uh, the united states mainly or the scandinavian countries um, there are different methodologies uh, problem-based learning as mm -hmm. an example how students try to understand problems, try to solve problems. It's superior compared to what we had in, in the past because you learn to work together in teams, dealing with a certain project, not learning by heart, mm -hmm. and then deleting of those alcohol. Yeah. That, is, that is not known so much <laughs> <laughs> the question right now and to do this in interdisciplinary groups. And this is something I really love. And this is what I love in my academia job to do this in the Netherlands and trying to do this in Germany as far as this is possible. And to me, the idea of a solid business is always to bring knowledge from the academia to business. Mm. without to take it to the street. Absolutely. Mm. So the knowledge transfer from the basic knowledge from academian world to the daily business has to be there. Otherwise, there's no solid ground. And it rings a bell because we, as part of the podcast over the last episodes, we have been talking a lot about data and digitization and access to data from various sources. What you do with your company, with Dahesis... You take that data, that understanding, those patterns that people understand and translate that into something meaningful yeah. for patients. Yeah. Yeah? So this is the, the very heart to me. That's the manifestation of the future of healthcare. And every single patient, if you think it through, yeah. Yeah, can receive the very individualized medicine that he or she needs in the end based on their very personal health factors such as, I don't know, genetic disposition and intolerance to certain substances yeah. and, and, and the alike. As you are, however, one of the front runners in that field. I mean, what have been initial reactions when this kicked off, when this started off? Were people understanding your move? Um, how, how have reactions been? Not only from the family, I mean, but also yeah. from, from colleagues that you have been working yeah. with and, and, and the alike. Yeah, they said, um, if you need some money, I give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good starting that, that's point. A very good start. Because like, that's what you also need for starting a yeah, company, right? Uh, absolutely. I mean, we had a pre-seed funding from Baden-Württemberg because uh -huh. they love startups and uh, we paid this back meanwhile. Mm -hmm. Okay. But as a startup, you always need money. That's one of the simple truths. They said, because a lot of my, my friends are in the medical sector and they said, this, this is definitely the future mm -hmm. to deal not with standards, but to understand that every single human being is different. This is given by biology. Mm -hmm. This is a rule. And what we do actually, or what we have been doing in the past is to say, um, when it comes to a tablet or a capsule, uh, this, this is not so, so important that everyone is different because you have 10, 5, 50, 100 milligrams that it's take it or leave it. Maybe you can mm -hmm. split a tablet. Mm -hmm. But this is the way it goes. I mean, as far as I know, uh, approximately uh, 67% of the global markets were driven by tablets and capsules. 
Okay. This is a lot. It's still sizable, yeah. It's <laughs> sizable, exactly. <laughs> and I very often explain when, when people ask what I'm doing there and what, what is the reason behind, I tell them the story of a patient who's suffering from diabetes type 1. I mean, here you substitute the insulin that this person really needs, not a standard. No one would say take 1,000, 5,000 and 10,000 international units, take it or leave it. Mm -hmm. But uh, it, it, it will be measured immediately. And then the pump will give the insulin to the body of the patient, exactly the insulin the patient really needs mm. in the second. So mm. very individualized. It's Absolutely. not personalized. It's mm. just individualized. And this is always the case when we have a syringe or an infusion, when we talk about tumor therapy, if we have drugs against cancer, you measure a variety of vital parameters of data that you need in order to firstly understand what kind of drug is the right drug. And number two, what is the correct dosage? And do I have to change it due to side effects, organ failure, drug interactions with other drugs the patient necessarily has to take? And um, when it comes to a tablet, you cannot answer this question. Mm. Take it or leave it. Yeah. This is one of the very simple reasons why we said we have an idea and we tried to, to bring it to the market, which, which is a long way to go mm. because there's a lot of... Uh, regulatory framework, a lot of things you have to cover in order to bring drugs to the patient. You have a printer, you have software, you have the pharma part, mm. you have the reimbursement segment. So this is what I tell them. Mm. It's from an idea. It's simple. It's mm. just a system to bring drugs to the patient Absolutely. individually. And, and this is what people can understand, right? Um, yeah. uh, this is taking whatever you generate as data, uh, bring them together, read patterns into it, Eventually, this is then becoming some sort of an individualized, personalized drug at some point. But can you elaborate a bit how that works in action? I mean, yeah. how are those um, 2D, 3D drugs actually printed? And probably also, what type of molecules or APIs do you currently have in your cartridge? Yeah. Um I start at uh, the end of the story. What, mm. what is the added value? The added value, the reason why is we can uh, print mm -hmm. an individual dosage, mm -hmm. changeable at any time, so very flexible, due okay. to the current situation of the respective patient. Mm -hmm. Added value number one. Added value number two, we can print more than one API in one tablet. So at the end of the day, we can reduce the amount mm -hmm. of tablets a patient has to take. Yeah. So one of the big hurdles, challenges for people as of today is that they have to take a lot of drugs. So adherence and compliance then is a real problem because drug therapy in this moment is very complex. And the idea of printing drugs is to make this less complex. So mm -hmm. in the moment when we can print more than one API into one tablet, we reduce the tablets a patient has to take. And we will make the adherence and compliance better and reduce the cost, mm -hmm. the overall costs, not the single cost of a patient, which is completely different. So this is the added value. This is a sustainable business, but maybe we can talk about this later on a little bit. But when we talk about 2D and 3D printing technology, then we talk about two really different technologies, although both technologies are driven by digitalization and uh -huh. are both digital methodologies. Let's start with 2D printing. This is like in your office when you print with your tabletop ink printer. It's really the same one technology. Layer. We have one yeah. layer. Mm. And in this case, the layer, the paper, 
is a so-called pharma paper. Mm -hmm. Very small, it's eight square centimeters, so that you can put it in your mouth, mm -hmm. but it's a pharma monographed paper mm -hmm. with no drug. And this is, this is then dissolving also this when it comes in, your in mouth. contact with, with, water? with okay. 20 or 30 seconds, it dissolves in your mouth. Okay. And um, what we do is, or what the pharmacy is doing from a legal perspective, they drop very quickly uh, with a printer the drug on this paper mm -hmm. individually in the individual dosage. And you can combine more than one drug on one paper. We call this ODF, which is short for oral dispersible film. Mm -hmm. It's like eating paper, yeah. so to say, pharma eating paper. And this 2D printing sounds very simple. It is not. No, can I imagine? It's, it's, <laughs> it's a very complicated technology because um, we have to bring together the best of three worlds. World number one is the pharma world. Mm -hmm. So we have to develop in our labs, GMP labs, the GMP is short for good manufacturing practice. This is the legal framework that we have to fulfill prior to bring anything to the patient. Yeah. This is given. And this is a good one because, I mean, we have to deal with the health of a patient. So we need this framework and we fulfill this completely. So it takes us between six and 12 months to develop an ink. And ink is really the technical term. Mm -hmm. So we have a solution. And inside this solution, there's one drug in a certain concentration. And we do not only develop this cartridge, this ink, we also sell this ink to the pharmacy mm -hmm. via our wholesale. So that at the end of the day, the pharmacy buys a cartridge mm -hmm. via the wholesaler, via us, and puts this into his printer. It mm -hmm. has to be a dehesis printer because the legal framework says that it has to be a compliant, a holistic system containing of hardware, which is the printer and the in-process controls, software, this is something you need to run the system, and pharma part. This has to be one system. So we have to provide all these three parts. And then you can print via 2D printing. We have the pharmaceutical eating paper, we have the cartridge, and then the physician is prescribing X, Y, that uh, personally for his patient. The patient takes his script. Mm -hmm. In Germany, he has to take this physically. In other countries, he has an e-script. That's a whole different topic. Yeah. A whole different <laughs> topic, but it's, it's like a joke in Germany. But anyways, goes to the pharmacy and the pharmacy checks, of course, the script and then starts printing. Uh -huh. Hands over the printed drug to the patient for the time the physician says this dosage for this time then you come back we check the dosage whether or not we have to make a higher dosage a lower dosage whatsoever and you don't have any problem with stability of the drug on the paper or kind of what's the shelf life of it it, it depends it really uh -huh. depends i mean this is one part of the development uh -huh. and um, we have to answer this question and we have three stabilities This is completely different to the pharmaceutical world as of today. I mean, the first stability is the stability of the drug in the closed cartridge. Okay. I mean, true. the shelf life has to be at least three or six months, mm -hmm. honestly, because we produce it, then we have to store it, and then we send it to the patient. Maybe he will store it for another two or three weeks. Absolutely. So there has to be a very long shelf life, and we have to test it, of course. Then you have the stability of the open cartridge because mm -hmm. once you have put this in, in, in the, in in the printer, printer, it's it's open. It has contacts with oxygen and we have to test how long the stability is mm -hmm. then and we have to give a certain shelf life to the pharmacy to say, well, you can use this for one week, for two weeks, for one or two months. Mm -hmm. And this is what we check prior to, mm -hmm. to, to the use at the patient. Of course, we have to. This is given uh, by the uh, legal authority bodies, of sure. course. And then we have shelf life number three. And this is the shelf life of the printed drug. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, here you don't need three months or so because this is for immediate use, maybe for four weeks, yeah, but not for months. No one will print for months because we only will print what is really needed. And that rings a bell also not to waste any resources unnecessarily, exactly. right? Exactly. I mean, we won the German Excellence Prize exactly for this reason, mm. that this is a very sustainable business where we use the resources that we need, but not more. We do not throw away anything. Mm. And this is really an added value. Let me just, uh, everyone listening into um, apologize for if you're hearing any noise in the background in this episode. We decided to meet here together in Cologne today. And it's, um, I just uh, looked it up on the internet because I didn't know the word. It's Fat Thursday, which is some sort of carnival um, that's going to happen yeah, uh, here. And uh, there is a bit of noise outside. So please do take our apologies for that. But never mind. Uh, let me ask how many... API, so active pharmaceutical ingredients, do you actually already have in your cartridge? Yeah? But also, how many APIs do you think will be needed yeah. to cover, let's say, a vast majority of drugs that you can print? Yeah. Yeah? Is it a couple of hundreds, thousands, ten thousand? I mean, yeah. just to get a feel yeah. for, for yeah. what we're talking about. Yeah. Therefore, I would love to just in very briefly say the 3D printing technology. Sure, please. Um, and this is not so much different from the 2D printing technology because mm -hmm. we have the same printer. We have mm -hmm. different printer heads. They're mm -hmm. dedicated to the API, so no one has to do the cleaning validation. Okay. This is against any business in hospital or brick and mortar pharmacies. And they have to print from a legal perspective. And this, what we do here is we don't use an ink. We use a polymer, pharma monograph polymer, and mm -hmm. we integrate an API into this polymer, mm -hmm. do this in a cartridge and send this to the pharmacy. It's this very short now, the, the process, but send this then to the pharmacy with all the checks and analysis that we have to make. And then the pharmacy can print. Mm -hmm. So two technologies, uh, different approaches, and both are from a medical perspective, uh, very important for patients because uh, due to adherence compliance, I mean, you're a physician when, when people suffer from dysphagia, so they are not able to swallow anything. Mm. The 2D printing technology is really helpful, helpful, as well as for very young children. I was going to say infants. I mean, Infants, they, absolutely. Yeah. Patriotic yeah. Uh, indications and so on. And the physicians they're talking to, um, they say, um, yes, infants and very old people, but everyone is here as a benefit from mm. this because it's so easy to take. Um, there are some limitations from a technical perspective, so not every drug can be used for 2D printing technology, but at the end of the day, both technologies will work and mm -hmm. there's a market for both technologies, so 2D and 3D printing. We have in Germany approximately 2,000 APIs on the markets mm -hmm. with a variety of finished products, names and brands. And This is maybe not efficient, mm -hmm. honestly. We all know the Me Too discussion. Mm -hmm. We have, I don't know, 30 beta-blocking agents in the market, more ACE inhibitors than needed, or 82 antagonists at the end of the day. As a hospital pharmacist, I know three is enough. You can cover each and every uh, illness with this. And um, if you look at different health insurance systems, nations, you will see that you need approximately 2,000 APIs to cover a system. If you're really efficient, maybe it's uh, 800. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is really sufficient. Um, 400 of them should be individualized mm -hmm. due to their physical chemical action, due to the people, the population, mm -hmm. the illnesses that they have. And having said this, 
means that at the end of the day, approximately 800 APIs is enough. So this is a goal that we mm -hmm. want to achieve. And right now we have 27 okay. APIs in the development phase. The first APIs are more or less ready. Mm -hmm. We're checking the last things and the authorities are checking all the data, the documentation that we have. And I hope that we can start in late summer this year to start the first outpatient project in the German market. And if you talk outpatient market, you mean collaborating with a local pharmacy yes. that uses the printer, that purchases the cartridge with the, by then, quality controlled, proved, certified API in yes. it. And they do that kind of field okay. testing with you. Yeah, I mean, this this is a project completely funded by a German health insurance statutory company. Okay. So not the private ones, so mm -hmm. I mean, a typical German health insurance company. And um, they said to us, well, we love the idea of personalized medicine because it will come anyways. And we want to be the first ones to test this. Mm -hmm. But not using a study because the API is the API. This is quite well known. Um, we want to have a selective contract. This is the yeah. technical term in Germany in order to guarantee that the patient can really only go to one physician and mm -hmm. that he has no choice to use a free pharmacy, but to go to one special pharmacy that uses this technology. Mm -hmm. This is quite normal in these selective contracts. So we have a consortium, a team, so to say, a sick fund, mm -hmm. the physician and a pharmacy. So the loop is closed. We have the physician, he is doing his uh, diagnosis, analysis with the mm -hmm. patient, and he chooses the individual way. He says, well, use this drug in a personal situation. Do you want this? Yes. Mm -hmm. Then he has to make his opt-in. And then the physician will prescribe this printed drug in this specific dosage in the first phase that he thinks the patient should take. Mm -hmm. Then the patient takes the script, goes to the specific pharmacy where the printer is located. The pharmacy checks the script, prints the drug, hands it over to the patient, and the patient takes this tablet. Mm -hmm. And the health insurance company is, so to say, organizing this, mm -hmm. this process, which is quite normal in Germany, and is funding this whole project. Which is and, really good news. And, and this is kind of a, a proof of concept in the market study yes, that yes. you are testing. Um, are, are you testing that against kind of what normally would happen? And you, you're handed out a drug and then you kind of test for adherence of the patient yeah. versus the adherence that you have yeah. with the two or 3D yeah. printed drug? Or what's kind of the, the essence of it? Yeah, if, I mean, if you can share, of course. Yeah, yeah. I, I can share. I mean, we have an NDA, so I cannot tell you about the name Absolutely. of the sick fund and, and the pharmacy and, and the medical provider. But what we have to do anyways is to evaluate this mm -hmm. project. And what we want to know is what can we see in terms of adherence compliance, side mm -hmm. effects, costs, and so on. And this is something we check with real-world data, mm -hmm. and we check this against historical data mm -hmm. because there's a variety of really valid cohort studies mm -hmm. that show the adherence compliance issues in certain indications, populations, and sure. so on. And this is what we do in the outpatient mm -hmm. sector. And we also have projects in the hospital mm -hmm. sector for example, with children. Mm -hmm. So the infants that you mentioned earlier. And uh, we have a lot of projects in the cardiovascular area due to the adherence compliance issues and due to the fact that a lot of drugs were metabolized by the kidney. Mm -hmm. And this is quite normal when we cross the 60, when we turn 61. Anyhow, your kidney will stop working, not immediately, but day by day. So the effectiveness of the kidney mm -hmm. is going down and um, then you have to change the dosage. Mm -hmm. 
And here we have a tool not to calculate the dosage. This is something every physician can do, but to have the right drug, the right dosage for the right patient. And there are a lot of drugs in the cardiovascular area that we use, but we have also projects with immunosuppressive drugs. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is really a lighthouse project. Mm -hmm. 20% of the kidneys were rejected again in the career of a transplant patient. And um, here it turns compliance problems and the issue that you do really have to meet the exact dosage, mm -hmm. the blood level, you measure the blood yeah. level, is very complicated with tablets. And here we have the solution because you can precisely tune the dosage that you need in order to meet uh, the exact uh, level in the blood of a patient. And this is something we interestingly do in the outpatient area, mm -hmm. not in the hospital sector. This is step number two. We will make a study around this and we'll check this afterwards in the hospital. And I love the fact that you talk about that consortium that consists of a physician, a pharmacist, but also the payer yeah. organization. So three P's basically yes. that you have already. Uh, there is a fourth P, yeah, which is pharma, of course. Um, yeah. And probably also alluding to this one, what do you think their role is going to be? Because as it works currently, of course, APIs are produced in China, shipped over to India, production happening there, packaging probably somewhere in Europe, then shipping around the world. That's kind of the supply chain setup, but also the manufacturing setup. Big bulk productions in many of the cases, this is very small bulk, uh, if any. Yeah, that, batch that size one. Batch size one you're going to do. I mean, probably two questions. What is their role going to be in this equation? But also, how do you think their approach to manufacturing and supply chain is going to change based on this, what we are going to see yeah. eventually in the years to come? Yeah, two different questions. Question number one, I very often have the question, is pharma your competitor? Mm -hmm. It is not. It is not. It seems to be in the mm -hmm. first view, but honestly, it is not because pharma knows exactly their APIs and their pharmacological action, their different sites of action, their mode of action, their side effects. They exactly know how many patients drop off therapy due to uh, side effects, due to a very high dosage. And then the dosage uh, below this, which is commercially available, is not effective enough. So we cooperate because for, mm -hmm. for a lot of drugs, we have the solution. So we bring as a startup the solution together with the pharma company to the market. And from a business model there, there's more than one solution. They can bring us the API. That's the easiest one. But look, especially not so much to the small molecules, but more to the current situation. A lot of biologicals, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, protein kinase inhibitors entering the market, really big innovations that we have here. And very often in these cases, you need an individualization mm -hmm. for different reasons. And here we have the solution. We can start very early in the clinical phase so that we can provide the clinical samples. Mm -hmm. 2D printing or 3D printing, both ways are possible. So very early to test this individual dosage that you can have a very specific registration later on that says between, for example, between one and 20 milligrams, mm -hmm. each step by 0.1 milligrams mm -hmm. possible, completely different registration. And then they can bring it to the market, which is a known model. Mm -hmm. Another opportunity is that you use the off-patent cliff. Mm -hmm. So every company knows when their product is going out of patent is will be a generically available. So mm -hmm. the price is going down. Mm -hmm. And um, here we have another idea because 
if this is a drug that really needs to be individualized or personalized, we can say you change the formulation. It is not longer a tablet or a capsule or so. It is a digital formulation, mm -hmm. again, maybe between one and uh, 20 milligrams in a printable way so you, that you can prolong the duration of your monopoly situation. Mm -hmm. This could be another deal for the generic industry. I mean, this is 80% of the market, not from the turnover perspective. Yeah, <laughs> Honestly, sure. every fish that swims in the ocean can be printed at the end of the day. So here we really choose very often together with pharma, APIs that should be individualized. And here we can have co-marketing things. Uh, they can deliver the API and so on. So there's a variety of uh, business models that are possible here. Um, at the end of the day, it won't be the large number of thousands of APIs. At the end, it's 800. Mm -hmm. So here we really clearly look what is a partner and what could not be a partner. Mm. But if you look at the molecules and at the future, Almost every biological drug is, is more effective if you individualize it. I very much like the fact that you are not perceiving pharma as a competitor, but uh, a partner, yeah. not only a potential partner, but also an actual partner, because you, I'm Absolutely. hearing that you are already partnering. Yeah. Still, I'm of the belief that manufacturing and supply chain, if this is becoming a large scale solution in future, will change. need to thaw through differently by pharma and need to change eventually. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, this is not only a business perspective. This is also a political perspective. All the countries in the EU want to bring back the API production to Europe. I mean, we really have a, a huge problem. 100% of the chemical substances that you need to make an API come from China. Mm -hmm. So he, here we have, an, let's say, a challenge. It's, it's, we do. It's, it's a challenge. And we have to solve it, honestly, in order to save lives in Europe and to guarantee that people can stay healthy and can work. So I think uh, from the very beginning, we should bring back API production to Europe. This will cost more money than it is currently the situation. Yep. This is given, this is set in stone. But on the other hand, if we print, we will not use as many ingredients as we use today or have used in the past because it will only be really produced what is really needed. I mean, you made the example of batch sizes of millions of tablets. Honestly, we throw away half of it. We, we do not yeah. need batch sizes of 15 million or so due to the fact that we, we have to use 15 million tablets. It is just for the reduction of the single price of the tablet. And um, this is maybe not in the mood of today. And yeah. if you ask my children, it's not in the mood of tomorrow. No. So th this could be a, a, a challenge because it's more expensive, but most probably it's more efficient. So the way of how we finance healthcare in the future not only with printed drugs, honestly, it's going around injectable drugs, it's going around genetic therapy, it's going around each and every personalized medical therapy has to be paid differently. I yeah. mean, today, this is an input-driven system. We, as people in Germany, we pay for the input, the, the time a physician, you are a physician, the time a physician spends for one patient cost X, Y, Z euros. No one is interested from the reimbursement system. What is the result of the intervention? Yeah. No one. So the quality aspect is not paid. Yeah. And this is the change that we have to make. And this won't happen tomorrow. So what we yeah. need, lighthouse projects that show that 
the process of putting more energy into quality will save money. And here you cannot compare a syringe against a syringe. You cannot compare a press tablet versus a printed tablet. This is nonsense. You have to compare the whole intervention in the context of the costs of the whole disease. So the overall cost is what you allocate. Yeah. And this is the job of today and tomorrow. And this is what we do. And here we have to negotiate in a completely different way. And this is a challenge. This is not so much a technical, a chemical, a physical challenge that we have when we develop our systems. This is more or less really a system challenge that we have. And on that sustainability of a healthcare system that actually can be paid for in future as well. Yeah. And also your earlier comment that to stay healthy, yeah, of course there is also a solution potentially in there. And uh, I've been checking your website where you also emphasize that you see a trend of a responsible patient uh, who is going to take more and more responsibility for their own health. And here we are very much in line on this trend. Uh, um, we just recently also surveyed around 1,500 people across five countries, including Germany and the US, of course, on their stance towards prevention. Yeah. And one of the key findings was that the majority of people do actually want to take active action and preventive measures for their health. But when looking into Germany, many are still skeptical towards the digital tools and the data sharing. And my question is then to you, because you are also banking on this, right? How do we overcome and foster uh, yeah, a more positive attitude uh, towards the huge potential of digitization in healthcare is actually holding? Yeah, I mean, this is really a challenge. This is a very skeptical population. It is. But... Um, Once this population is convinced and uh, is a fan of a new technology, we are quite fast in change. Mm -hmm. uh, but other countries are faster than we are. When we look at the Baltic countries, at the Scandinavian countries, they are so familiar with digitalization in the healthcare markets. It's quite normal. Yes, they have the data protection, but it's really not so much a hurdle in order to bring new business to the ground and to make new business and to, to improve patients' lives. Mm -hmm. um, I think what we need is lighthouse projects that show that it works. So proof of concept. Proof of Actually concept. value to patients. Yeah, yeah. And, and it should not only work in, in a certain area. You have to show that it works for a patient. So safety, quality. You have to show that it really improves the quality mm -hmm. of life. And you can measure the costs, of course. You have to show that it works from a medical and pharmaceutical so process perspective. And you have to show from a re reimbursement perspective that it works as well. And once you have shown it, you have to show from a business perspective, the most important item, this is the scalability. Mm -hmm. It should not only work in Cologne, yeah. even in Carnival or in Düsseldorf or in Munich or in Flensburg or anywhere. It has to work everywhere and not only in Germany. And this is why we love to have projects not only in Germany, but also outside Germany. We have projects in the United States mm -hmm. with partners in the United States, a completely different healthcare system, privately driven, different rules, same quality at the end of the day. It's a GMP framework. And we have to show it each and everywhere. It's beneficial for the patient, for the physician, for the system, and it's scalable. And once we have shown this, I'm pretty sure that we can convince a lot of people to use this technology. I love the idea when my mother-in-law goes to her 
GP and says, I want to have a printed drug. Mm. This is the day when I will fund a new or have a new company because then it's, then it's done. <laughs> and then we achieved our goal. No, um, but, but honestly, we have to show that it works and we have to talk about it. Yeah. We have to make it public. We have to publish it. And of course, there needs to be a lot of change in the future. Behavior uh, of uh, patients, behavior of physicians as well. I mean, they used to prescribe 5, 10, 20 milligrams. Very often I get the question, Christian, how do I calculate the new dosage? I mean, I have a dosage regime that says in the beginning 2.5, then 5, then 10. And there are side effects, but, but how can I change it? So there's a change of behavior. Although physicians, pharmacists learn in their studies that healthcare is something really individual. And Absolutely. that you really have to calculate it individually. Unfortunately, the drug doesn't need an individual calculation because the answer of a certain renal function can't be given by a normal tablet. Mm. And now there's the answer. And thinking it through, I mean, also you could shift boundaries when it comes to access to medicine. Because what works in Germany and the US, I mean, you yes. can think it also through a, a mobile printer. Right? Yes. It's not a big factory that you're building. It's only a printer. I know it's still a bit bulky, yeah, but <laughs> it will eventually get smaller over time. But you could put that onto something and bring it around the world and also meet needs in sub-Saharan Africa or wherever. Absolutely. I mean, we can print in the printer everywhere. So from a legal perspective, we have to print in pharmacies. Mm -hmm. But in those regions that you mentioned, you can print uh, in pharmacies as well or together with a physician mm -hmm. um, when there's support by NGOs also. So we have a lot of questions around that. It, it really helps to bring the drugs to the people. So it's not only for developed Western countries. It is really not. It's a global approach that we have. And we have really the idea to bring the printers in these regions where there's always no there's no healthcare at all. Maybe there is a physician. And this is really an added value that can really help. And this is something we have to evaluate as well. So therefore, we really need these 800 APIs mm -hmm. up and ready so that we can really cover the needs of a healthcare system. I'm super impressed by the mission that you and your fellow founders and your team are and actually translating that data that we are able to now tap into more and more and more in future and translate that into actually solutions that will come to patients and people in need. And yeah, with that, um, I, I really thank you, Christian, for, for the time that we had together and spent together. And again, um, impressive what you're doing. And I will certainly closely watch uh, what's next there. Yeah? And Also looking forward to the study that is soon to kick off. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed our talk. Same here. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening in today. I personally was really impressed by Christian's mission to turn understanding of patients via accessing their data into concrete 2D and 3D printed solutions. One of the underlying enablers to me I heard at least are consortiums between physicians, pharmacists, payers, pharma and patients led by a conversion of their interests to doing something better for patients ultimately. If you want to hear more or see more, please feel free to visit our strategy and website, download our latest thought leadership there. And I'm already very much looking forward to our next episode. But until then, all the best and stay safe. Strategy and strategy made real.